Welcome to the Dialectic by the Rajput and the Wasp. I'm Atul Singh, the Rajput. And I am Glenn Carl, the Wasp. Excellent. Today uh, we are going to look at something which is very dear to Glenn's heart, and uh, it is something that Glenn is one of the top experts in the world. And it is uh, something that relates to a historic uh, development event that happened 22 years ago and then something else that happened 20 years ago. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we will be looking at the Iraq War of 2003 and before that to 2001 and 9-11, the attacks of September 11th, 2001 in New York and Washington, D.C., and how they changed the world. So, Glenn, what happened 22 years ago that changed the world? Oh. Well, on September 11, 2001, uh, it's hard for those of us who lived it and then, and I guess really worked on it and had our lives shaped by it uh, to realize that it's um, time passes quickly and that it is now ancient history forgotten by uh, most and, and not even experienced at all by every day more and more people. But on September 11, 2001, Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda organization um, attacked the World Trade Center towers in New York City, which were 105 stories tall or some such thing as that, uh, the, and the Pentagon in Washington. Uh, and they were probably aiming at either the White House, which is my guess, uh, or the U.S. Capitol, also in Washington. But that that didn't actually um, succeed, that one aspect of the attack. And they flew airplanes into them, killing in total about 3,000 Americans and, and bringing down two 105-story buildings, uh, which then began what came to be called a hideous name, but perhaps apt for its lunacy, the War on Terror. Or oh, the Global War uh, which, on Terror, as some say. <laughs> the Global War on Terror, the GWAT, that's correct. The Global War on Terror, which we would refer, refer to in our cables, our telegrams and written correspondence, as the GWAT. Um, and that uh, didn't simply shape, but it dominated U.S. policy, which therefore meant uh, much of uh, international relations for... 15 years, uh, or of course, yeah, about 15 years. So, Glenn, um, you have a personal story. You were negotiating with the Taliban for the U.S., and you took then-Taliban's foreign minister around New York, and you actually uh, looked up at the <laughs> World Trade Center. <laughs> Recount that story again. Yeah, I, I was... Um, I can talk a little bit about uh, this aspect of my uh, life, uh, at least uh, elusively, um, if not elusively. Uh, from 1997 to 2001, I uh, handled uh, some aspects of uh, U.S.-Afghan um, interactions, which meant the Taliban. The Taliban took power from a vacuum um, in 1996. <clears throat> And so from 1997-2001, for various reasons, I, I had responsibilities on um, for Afghanistan and uh, human rights issues in particular. So at one point, the as I recall, I don't remember the name of the gentleman, but the deputy foreign minister or assistant to the foreign minister 
the Taliban came to New York and um, I showed him around Manhattan. And he was a polite young man in his late 20s, I would guess. Um, I don't think he was in his 30s even, maybe. Uh, and I showed him, you know, the uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah of, of Gotham City, <laughs> meaning that we walked down streets during the day, and and he simply saw, you know, the decadence all around him in, in his view. I think, uh, but he was very polite, wide-eyed. Um, we didn't go to the World Trade uh, Towers. We were in uh, in Midtown Manhattan around the United Nations at the time, uh, so I did show him around. Yes, that is true. And uh, and there is an argument that many make that uh, the U.S. needed to go to war after 9-11 and the U.S. needed to go into Afghanistan 20 years down the line. The Taliban are back in power. Uh, there are some who even now argue the U.S. Should have gone into Iraq given what it knew at the time, and of course, uh, twenty. No, you mean Afghanistan, not Iran? No, I mean Iraq as well. Iran. Some argue that given Iraq, that, uh, given that, uh, given what they knew at the time, the, the U.S. should have gone to Iraq as well. Uh, so, uh, walk us through why did the U.S. first go to war in Afghanistan, and why two years later it ended up uh, adding Iraq to the list? Yeah. Well, the the two have been. Uh, combined in uh, discussion because of history, what what actually happened uh, into one subject or one issue, and that's tragic because it is um, it was made to be true by our actions, but otherwise would not was not the truth. Meaning that Afghanistan, the issue of terrorism, Iraq, um, Saddam Hussein really had zero to do with one another. Uh, they came to be associated in, in the global war on terror perspective by the United States, the then administration, the President Bush and the neoconservatives, Republicans, um, because they, they, the administration, kept beating the drum that they were one and the same problem. But they, they actually, and this is, was taken at the time as a polemical political statement, but it is not. It is a factual statement, colon, they had nothing to do with one another until we invaded and made them have to do with one another. So why so Afghanistan why did, first? Why did we go into Afghanistan? After the Soviets uh, pulled out of Afghanistan in 1991 or two, uh, there was a vacuum and there there was a state of nature in afghanistan there it it reverted to a a a space a number of uh overlapping uh tribes and and societies uh without a government uh, there was a state of nature there was anarchy and it is true as the taliban uh asserted that there were women being uh, raped and, and there was no rule of law. So there was essentially a civil uh, war. Let me, let, various... me, let me very quickly, uh, you know, uh, add a qualifier. I think there was never a rule of law in Afghanistan after perhaps uh, uh, the Soviets took over or after Afghanistan turned communist. The rudimentary rule of law existed until they had a monarch. 
Um, what happened during the days of the Civil War was chaos. There wasn't even order. I don't think they particularly had rule of law even when the Taliban took over. They had some draconian sharia, but it wasn't exactly rule of law, law as we know in the West. Oh, when the Taliban hadn't gotten that far. Yeah, well, their, their rule, um, there, there was a semblance of a state. Yeah. Um, it it, it, brought, it kept order, applying, but not law. It was, it, yeah, applying, well, well, they were applying or attempting to apply the 7th century Sharia, yeah. you know, version of Islamic law. After they took over. Um, after and before took that, over. it was all uh, a crazy civil war. Prior to that, it was, there were various warlords yeah. who were, their power centers being various uh, ethnic factions, whether it was the, uh, the Sunni or the uh, Uzbek or the, um, the, the, the Tajik, the Tajiks factions. led by Ahmad Masood, the Uzbeks led by Rashid Dostum. Right. There were, of course, mm. uh, Mazari Sharif was another power center, all of that. And then the right. Taliban sweep so, it into power. They, and so the Taliban won this uh, struggle. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, we all suspect they, they did so um, with some assistance mm -hmm. from the Pakistani intelligence service. The Inter-Services Intelligence, which, the ISI. The ISI, mm -hmm. which um, chose them as, um, you know, their, their proxies, their agents to, to extend uh, Pakistani influence and security because the, the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan has always been somewhat fictitious and existed more in the salons of London in the 18, 1890s or 1880s than, than ever in, in fact. So it was in Pakistan's interest, they thought. In any event, this is too much in the weeds. The Taliban took control in 1996. The U.S. policy was as follows, from really from 1996 until uh, September 11, 2001. Uh, and I know this because I I did it. Uh, I was I was one of the people trying to uh, to implement uh, and advocate represent this policy. And our view was Afghanistan has will do what Afghanistan wishes to do, and its internal affairs are its own. We have one request: Osama bin Laden moved to uh, sought refuge in Afghanistan in 1996 when he was expelled under U.S. pressure from Sudan. Uh, because uh, he had attempted to assassinate one of my colleagues, whom I know quite well, uh, who was working in Sudan, and was conducting terrorist operation attacks against not just the United States, uh, Western, secular, and Saudi apostate uh, um, entities, whether they were people or, or buildings or, or, or governments and so on. So we tried to, we, the United States, tried to uh, detain or have bin Laden detained in Sudan. And uh, Bashir, President Bashir of Sudan, who was sympathetic to uh, bin Laden, refused to do so. But finally, under pressure, uh, he, the pressure became too strong for him. So he had bin Laden leave. Bin Laden went to Afghanistan. The U.S. policy then for four years was to the Taliban. Um, please uh, render um, uh, Osama bin Laden to justice uh, to um, to the United States so that we can try him for terrorism. And I could I could go through a long list of terrorist attacks that Al Qaeda clearly did 
conduct against the United States. Um, Al-Qaeda blew up uh, the American embassies in um, Kenya and uh, Tanzania, uh, killed other colleagues of mine, uh, people I, I didn't know, not just colleagues because we were in the same organization, uh, and so on. Uh, the Taliban always said, well, they essentially said no. And we continued to say, you know, we can we can be a good friend to Afghanistan, we the United States, if you will uh, surrender um, bin Laden so that we can try him, not kill him. We wanted to put him in, in the court of justice. Um, but the, the Taliban always refused. And fundamentally, they did so because he was an Islamic brother and uh, they, they didn't want to give him to an apostate evil state. They did say, we'll, we'll try him in an Islamic court, if you'd like, in Afghanistan. And we didn't think there would be much justice served uh, in that sort of uh, almost certain farce. So he said no. After all, then, he was fighting a jihad in his eyes and in fact, even in theirs. Absolutely, yeah. You know, he was. You know, Osama bin Laden is Saint George slaying the dragon in Christian terms. Um, he was. <laughs> he was trying to. He was. You know, he was a hero uh, opposing cultural and political uh, uh, pollution. In his view, uh, the end of this of civilization and of uh, morality, and more importantly than that, of uh, God's way on earth. And what was the? There were two main uh, centers of this evil from his perspective. One was the United States um, and other Western states who were um, religiously, you know, uh, apostates or not apostates were, we didn't know the true way of uh, Islam and, and refused it. We were infidels. You were Christians. And the other was the apostate states of Saudi Arabia in particular, which was polluting the most sacred sites of Islam and perverting the religion. And so bin Laden decided that he knew the truth uh, and would uh, try to uh, bring truth and justice to, to all uh, by killing uh, anyone who disagreed with him. And uh, so that's what he was trying to do. And if you share that view, then he was acting honorably. And if you think that that's lunatic, that one person um, ascribed to himself, assigned to himself the authority of life and death over uh, billions, then perhaps the, he wasn't so wise after all. So that's that was our one position, the United States one position. Uh, I know this, this is not reductionist. I know this because I did it. And then... Um, as George Tenet, who was then the director of the CIA, said at the time, and he said it subsequently in testimony many times, all of these signs were flashing red um, that Al-Qaeda was going to conduct more attacks and that an attack on the United States, in the United States, was imminent. We, this was not a surprise to us. We knew this, but we didn't know where or when. And we tried to find out, and obviously we failed uh, in the end to stop this attack. And then 9-11 occurred and uh, he hijacked, he had his operatives hijack four um, airplanes and fly them into buildings, killing ultimately 3,000 people. At which point, the response of the US government, um, President Bush uh, was told immediately that we had, we, the CIA, the US intelligence community and the State Department had a very good idea as to who did it. We had no doubt really and we, you know, we, verified 
that our assessment was correct multiple times from multiple sources after the fact that it was Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And, and Bush said to one of his uh, staff members the, the day of the attack, well, we're going to kick some ass now, or I think that's a paraphrase, but he did say kick some ass. Um, and he would go get the, the um, perpetrators, which is Al-Qaeda. And where was Al-Qaeda? Al-Qaeda's headquarters, which was bin Laden's residence, was in uh, just outside Kandahar in Afghanistan. So uh, the United States issued an ultimatum, give us bin Laden uh, or we will come and take him. And the Taliban um, temporized and then said no. And so the United States invaded. And uh, it was a pretty clearly justifiable act in this instance. Uh, this instance was clearly justifiable as opposed to other invasions by the U.S. or other countries uh, that are far more NATO invoked Article murky. 5. Um, and basically, it was uh, a coalition that went into Afghanistan. UK played a big role. I believe MI6 was of assistance to new chaps in Langley. So on the whole, it was it was uh, quite uh, uh, quite a diverse set of characters. Of course, America played the re leading role, but you had the Dutch, you had the you had the Danes, you even had the Germans. Yeah, there was near universal support. I, I'm not aware of just about any state that um, opposed the U.S. initial uh, policy of invading Afghanistan. Uh, there were some who were quiet, perhaps, but there was not much opposition. Um, it's true NATO involved or invoked its Article 5, which is that an attack on one is an attack on all and our existential um, security is uh, is at risk, and so we are obliged to, under treaty, our obligations to come to the aid of that country which has been attacked, and that is true. And MI6 um, and other countries uh, certainly provided work closely with the United States um, for years after the attack and before on counterterrorism issues. The invasion itself was of Afghanistan was, to my knowledge, pretty much exclusively an American operation. The invasion of Iraq two years later uh, was also an American operation, but but there was more clear and material um, participation by other countries, but we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. uh, so the invasion of Iraq occurred, the attack on the United States was September 11, and it was about six weeks later in mid-October, I forget the exact date, that the United States um, invaded Afghanistan. And it's one of the triumphs, you can argue about the failure of the ultimate policy years later, but the invasion itself is one of the triumphs of uh, the CIA and, and U.S. special forces in, in history. Because literally, about 120 CIA off officers um, and uh, an equal number of special forces officers plus a handful of aircraft from the U.S. Navy um, destroyed the Taliban's army and, uh, and occupied the country. Yeah, with local with, help, may uh, I add, which is, with, which, with which is why the role oh, of the CIA was extraordinary, because the bulk of the fighting was done by the Northern Alliance, the Tajiks. The Northern Alliance. Yeah, in uh, particular. Uh, men. He he had army, been killed on September 9th, two days before 9-11 yes. by... Uh, now, Amit Shah Massoud, to those yeah. listening, he was the 
um, head of what was called the Northern Alliance. Yeah. It was the only organized resistance uh, to the Taliban's control yeah. um, in the Panjshir Valley, um, yeah. east and north of uh, Kabul. Yeah. He's and known as the Lion of hard... Panjshir. To our readers, they must know that he was a great military commander. He fought the Soviets. He was widely regarded as the as the best uh, Afghan commander. He was backed, uh, of course, by the CIA during his uh, days uh, fighting the Soviets. And later, of course, even though he was dead, his men still had the organization and uh, the fighting experience to take on the Taliban. And, and the U.S. Backed, uh, backed the Northern Alliance, backed Massoud's boys, who in any case had, uh, had a score to settle. And the triumph was, was glorious. Yes. Now he was, as you said, he was he was assassinated on September nine yeah. by Al Qaeda. Yeah. Um, was it the Taliban or was it Al Qaeda or was it both? I I don't. Well, I, I'm pretty confident it was it was Al Qaeda working, um, sort of doing a favor for I see. the Taliban. I see. Um, and and part of the the larger sequence or or matrix of uh, attacks that Bin Laden at that time was was um, performing, you know, conducting. Um, so September 9, they get rid of him uh, for, for the Taliban, but for themselves. And September 11, uh, they attacked the United States. And uh, now Bin Laden's objective was not just to give a bloody nose to the US, but you know, he, he was um, uh, skilled in a number of ways and, and seriously delusional um, in, in others. You know, he believed that the uh, as, as so many opponents of the United States have always to their chagrin ultimately that the um, the godless uh, infidel incoherent because so uh, pluralistic and and therefore disorganized seeming uh, culture was simply hedonistic and uh, decadent and that a blow would and only interested in money and pleasure and that a blow to the the heart of uh, American capitalism, New York City, would so disrupt the American economy that uh, the American governments and civilization would uh, start to collapse. I mean, it's really quite a lunatic thought, but but one shared before bin Laden by the likes of Hitler and, and others. Uh, even um, even uh, actually shared by the founder of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan Banna, who was horrified by the sight of immoral American girls going dancing with boys. Dancing in Colorado. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, 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 clearly they hadn't gone to, uh, to Berlin and women uh, and seen women sunbathing topless. You know, that, that would have horrified them further. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. Uh, I mean, to be fair, America is a pretty conservative country, at least those of us who've spent time in Europe and move west to america we are horrified by the conservatism of america where you can't even go to a bar without a fake id until you're 21. so you know uh, far from being licentious i mean my view of america is it's too bloody conservative yeah well this i guess things look differently depending on where you come, come from. from exactly but then but. you know hey ho you know there we go i'm a descendant of the immoral uh, 
uh, you know, Rajputs, uh, particularly on my on my grandmother's side, the Chandels, who built the most erotic temples in history. So I'm certainly not high on the purity spectrum. <laughs> but but you know, you had to be invaded because of that. Yes, because of, of course, your decadence and, and, and civilized. Just, which they and, did. And they was... did. They did civilize some of us. Some of us converted. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. It was the Americans' turn, you know, later because we didn't exist until later. And so okay. <laughs> So it, it truly was about 120 operatives of the CIA and the equivalent numbers in special forces. So it was a, a brilliant operation. It, it took a few weeks only to destroy the Taliban. Now, you know, when you look at the objective correlation of forces, I mean, it's quite absurd. You have the most powerful nation in history militarily against a ragtag bunch of people who live in crags and carry Enfield rifles from 1903. No, no, um, they carry AK-47s, okay. Glenn. That's not true. I mean, they were carrying Enfield <laughs> rifles earlier. Don't exaggerate. I mean, you, you, and you, no, you, no. you had given them plenty Actually, of good weapons during Soviet times. <laughs> you know, I'm not being completely facetious because my my colleagues found I didn't work on okay. the uh, directly on the, uh, the U.S.'s support to the Mujahideen against fighting the Soviets, but when when um, the U.S. started to provide modern weapons to the Mujahideen so that they could fight the Soviets. They quickly found, they being my colleagues, quickly found that there, this was in some ways a mistake because you have to understand and exercise some fire control, meaning that a modern weapon has a magazine that can fire probably 32 bullets at no, a time, AKs have like a 30, machine gun. AKs have 30. 30, 30 okay. AK-47s and AK-56, if I remember correctly, from my days as an officer, because that was my choice okay, of so, weapon. So, so 30 bullets, but if you have your... your um, if you're trigger happy, you're you out of 30 very quickly, and you, you, you basically and are the, out and of ammunition, and, and then you're... Yeah, and then you find yourself yeah, dead. Yeah, you're rogerly, and, I mean, you're, you're, you're profoundly and irreversibly screwed, or rogered, whatever term you want to use. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so that happened over and over. And it was found that the Enfield was actually in some ways superior because <laughs> you could, you know, it was a very good rifle, but, but it only fired single shots and you had to then recock the thing. Yeah. Um, but okay, that's that, that also is a little bit too much in the weeds. Yeah. But uh, it, that was sort of shocking to discover that. In any event, how do we go back to the Mujahideen? Um, Very simple. Uh, in a few weeks of fighting, the Taliban had been vanquished. Uh, the victory had been glorious, and and and, right. and now you, and you were basically in control, sort of in control. Well, now we get to the where the tragedy begins. Yeah, uh, hubris, I would argue later, but but probably tragedy. So, what were the United States objectives in invading Afghanistan? It was to destroy Al Qaeda, destroy his refuge osama bin laden's um, refuge basically osama bin laden osama bin laden's refuge mm -hmm. uh, and capture bin laden mm -hmm. there was not much thought given to afghanistan itself except that the taliban were in the way and had become clearly uh, allies and protectors of bin laden president bush was explicit that the united states would not make the error of nation building, of attempting to reform the Afghan society and create institutions. It was not our problem, and it was a road to complexity and probable disaster, or at least terrible problems. 
if the United States tried to do that, if any state does that. You cannot reform societies with armies. Or if you can, it takes literally multiple generations. So Bush was clear-eyed and explicit about this when we invaded. But what happened is bin Laden escaped. Um, and we owned the country at that point. We had destroyed the what passed for the government and uh, were there. And the, the assessment was that Al-Qaeda was still present. This was very controversial in-house in the United States government, counterterrorism circles um, and, and without. Uh, now, my view came to be that that was a grievously erroneous um, and reductionist assessment. But there was a conflation, and this is a very important point for the subsequent history uh, of the past 20 years. The, the neoconservatives and, and uh, what came to be the dominant faction school of thought in the CIA was that uh, the threat of jihadist terrorism from al-Qaeda in the, quote, global war on terror uh, was existential and pervasive, that American and Western civilization was threatened, one, and two, that a jihadist in Morocco or a jihadist in Nigeria, a jihadist in Malaysia, and a jihadist in Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera, were all part of a global network, a coherent, hierarchical, controlled um, organization. This remains controversial to this day. Many fine people in counterterrorism uh, areas continue to believe this, and it is profoundly existentially, actually, well, not, I'll take that back, profoundly, tragically wrong. Yeah. I, I, it is I, not true. Exactly, because uh, to even assert that um, you could have a global organization of such a ragtag diverse bunch uh, beggars imagination, if you've traveled a wee bit, as I have, even, for instance, the French resistance under the, uh, against the Gestapo wasn't terribly organized. It's really hard to organize a resistance because by its very nature, it fragments. It's like nuclear fission. So you've got lots of disparate actors who go in lots of different ways, and they can cause a lot of nuisance, but they are certainly not coherent. Well, it's that's my view, I'm, I'm, and it's not just my view. I'm confident that is correct. Um, and it's the view of, uh, to simplify a little bit, there were two schools of thought within the U.S. intelligence community, so, those who felt as I just expressed and you did, mm -hmm. and those who expressed the other view, which which won the argument. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and were they neoconservatives? Were the people holding this view, were they mainly neoconservatives? The policymakers at the top were neoconservatives, yes. Mm -hmm. um, not all of the intelligence uh, personnel were neoconservatives, mm -hmm. but they did share this, uh, come to share the or actually they helped elucidate mm -hmm. develop that view, mm -hmm. which comforted the views and objectives of the neoconservatives. Mm -hmm. It's actually more that way. Mm -hmm. We'll get to the motivations of the neoconservatives uh, in a moment. Mm -hmm. They're more relevant. For um, Iraq. To, for Iraq, although for Afghanistan too. Yeah. So, now we, are, so now we are in a situation. Then the question became, well, we have Afghanistan. What happens now if we leave? The view was um, Al-Qaeda will come back, the Taliban will be there still, and we will have solved nothing. So we have to stay. 
At the same time, the policy was, well, we, we don't do nation building. Mm. So what's the answer? In the, there's no answer to this. Uh, to this, You can't square that circle. Um, but we stayed, much like happened to, frankly, the British in many parts of their empire over mm. a couple of centuries. Mm. To leave was viewed as a defeat. To stay sort of had no point, but to show that we can continue mm. to have sovereignty, suzerainty over the area. Right. And then we that that was it. Yeah, so then the it classic example this... for Britain was Palestine. They basically marched into it in a moment of triumph. Allenby announced, General Allenby announced he had come as a pilgrim, not as a conqueror. And he in had, 1916. Yeah, and he achieved what Richard yeah. the Lionheart had failed. Basically, the Brits were in Jerusalem, finally. And um, after many centuries, but hey, ho, there we go. They were there. They were in charge. And very quickly, they found that they had promised two very separate things to the Arabs and the Jews. And eventually, they couldn't ride those two boats at the same time. And eventually, they left. But they left after losing a lot of people unnecessarily. And of course, we of course we know of the Camp David bombing and, and a few other incidents. But it was a very painful, protracted uh, three-decade experience for the British. Uh, because they weren't, you know, gaining revenues from Israel, unlike India. So Israel was a money-losing proposition. Well, I think for the British Empire, the only clearly profitable uh, colony that the, uh, Great Britain ever had was India. No, no, South Africa uh, was good. Diamonds and commodities. So th yeah, so, so it isn't just India. That would not be. And India then was India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Hong Kong was not right, bad. Right, Hong right, Kong right. was profitable. It was a great port. So I think... Yeah, there were a few profitable places, but yeah, a lot of them were also basically being subsidized by the money coming from British India, which yeah, was the, the jewel the in the crown. The were profitable before that. Yeah. yeah. Sure. In any event, we don't care about the British colonizers yeah. for the moment. Yeah. Um, so the U.S. found itself with Afghanistan. What to do? So it started to... to um, nation build to create a government that we could leave the country to because we didn't want to be there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true. The U.S. didn't really want to be there, mm -hmm. but found itself stuck. Um, and then um, the Taliban never really went away. And there, the, the organic um, dynamics, internal dynamics of Afghanistan are very relevant too. And you know, what was Afghanistan? It, it's essentially, it was a, a number of different um, uh, tribal entities dominated rough, you know, vaguely by the Pashtuns. So it was sort of, Pasht the Taliban were sort of Pashtunistan, um, supported by the Pakistani intelligence service. And, and the Pakistanis didn't want the Imperial Americans or the nasty Indians having any sort of influence. Or in the wily Iranians. <laughs> or the wily Iranians, correct? Yes, yes, they yeah. mentioned that yeah. um, in in Afghanistan, and uh, so it was in their interest. And, and they have this bizarre, they being the Pakistanis. What I have always viewed as is, well, nations have their mania and mm. and delusions. Certainly, the US, U.S. does. They have this 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 strategic concept that Afghanistan can provide strategic depth yes. to Pakistan against their 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 behemoth enemy. India, which you know, I just find crazy. Did you to imagine? Did you encounter this in your interactions with uh, your counterparts in ISI? Did you find this fixation with strategic depth? 
Uh, never, they never said that to me directly. Mm. No, but no. you saw um, that in their uh, in, in in their behavior. Oh yes, oh yes, yeah. I can I can find no other. Well, there are uh, the other explanations for Pakistan. Of course, wants to have a weak Afghanistan, so that it's not a threat to Afghanistan because there are border issues with. Uh, they, so that the they Pashtun. are not a threat to Pakistan. So. Not yeah, a threat to Pakistan. Pakistan. That's and, correct. And there's a Durand line which no Afghanistan government has ever accepted, and they claim territories. Which, you know, they lay claim in they Pakistan. being the Afghans, largely the Pashtun, to large parts of Pakistan, mm-hmm. <laughs> which would irritate the Pakistanis. And so it's their interest to have a weak Afghanistan, which they can broadly keep in check, uh, while keeping the Indians out, the Iranians out or down, the the Russians out. Um, and any other infidel uh, out, and so that's that was Pakistan's game, and the Americans were in the way. What, who wants the, you know, uh, the big brother there? And so they were supporting the Taliban, quite clearly. And then the U.S. found itself in this low level, and then sometimes not so low level, um, terrorist-like insurgency, really an insurgency, while trying to build up institutions that could that could be self-sustaining. Um, the military, the rule of law, and so on and so forth. And that went on for um, basically for 20 years. The U.S. got stuck there. However, we also doomed ourselves to fail. Not only was the objective probably unobtainable, but it certainly was unobtainable when within, oh, let me think, we we conquered um, Afghanistan by the end of November, I would guess. Can't remember exactly. It took about six weeks. Um, and then immediately, and this is I have firsthand experience in this, immediately the um, resources of the United States, intelligence and military and otherwise, were substantially withdrawn and redirected towards Iraq. Hmm. Um, as early as and, that, that is crazy to me. Oh, no you, question you about it. You haven't even Absolutely. finished business you, you, you've not finished business in Afghanistan where, yes, you've kicked out Taliban, but um, Osama bin Laden is still alive and you're already redirecting resources away. That's crazy to me. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. I, I can uh, oh any number of personal firsthand uh, experiences substantiating mm-hmm. that I, c- I could um, reveal. And it, and it was clear, clear as of December 2001, uh, that our attention was turning to Iraq. And in fact, I'll go back further. That's December 2001. In January 2001, when the when uh, President Clinton left office and President Bush assumed office as President of the United States, I was working, as uh, we have talked about, on Afghanistan. And the briefings uh, from the intelligence community to the incoming administration were Terrorism by jihadists is a real threat. And here's, you know, they blew up the embassies here and they've killed people there. They've kidnapped them here. Osama bin Laden tried to assassinate people in Sudan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this, pardon me, this is a problem that we have to pay attention to. That was the briefing by the outgoing Clinton administration. And that was that was accurate. And the response from the neoconservatives was, You're, you know, Democrats don't know how to do foreign policy. Clinton is a namby-pamby leftist. Um, we understand true statecraft and the clash of great nations. And so, you know, we'll take it from here. Our priorities are 
to develop an anti-ballistic missile system to stop the rise of China and to destroy Saddam Hussein. And that was it. That, that, was, that was clear from, from January uh, 2001 on. There's no, just no question. So I go back to December. No, essentially a year later after the invasion, conquest of Afghanistan, the destruction of the Taliban's control and the uh, eviction of Al-Qaeda and, and really largely its decimation. Now, something that is a context that's really important to know and that people to this day don't understand because for 20 years there was almost 15, there was the global war on terror fighting this, quote, existential, unquote, threat. It was my job to know what the size of Al-Qaeda was, not mine alone, but that was my position. And in fact, Al-Qaeda never consisted at the time of the invasion and any time after that of four to 600 people. Now it's true, several thousands had been trained in sort of commando you know, techniques and some of them were chosen for terrorist operations through Tarnak farms outside of Kandahar, Afghanistan, where bin Laden had his base. Um, but that's not the same thing as a someone who has sworn allegiance to, been brought into the organization and trained as a terrorist operative. Al-Qaeda never consisted of really more than four to 600 people, of whom, I always argued, really, let's, and I'll make these figures up, but this is, you know, more or less correct. 400 or 420 of them were young men with AK-47s who would who would uh, shoot me or behead me. But that does not make them a terrorist, a capable operative who can do an attack uh, like 9/11. There were there were probably a few dozen quote officers who could conceive, uh, manage, uh, and run a terrorist operation, a strike. Uh, and then there were dozens uh, of people who they would um, train and designate to do this. Now, it only takes one person to kill hundreds. We found it takes one person to kill thousands. But that was out the size of Al-Qaeda. It was then it was said in congressional testimony over and over and over. Um, question, uh, Mr. Intelligence Representative, often it would be the director of the CIA, uh, in how many countries does Al-Qaeda operate? And the formal position of the CIA was Al-Qaeda is present in 80 countries. But that was not true. Now, that was heatedly debated because what is a member of Al-Qaeda? As I say, there were different views on this. But the true answer was Al-Qaeda was present, true Al-Qaeda, not just jihadists who are dangerous uh, and whom we should stop, but not the same thing as a member of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was present in six countries, not 80. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, uh, Tanzania, that's four. Um, gosh, I'm losing my uh, train of thoughts now. And there are two other countries, uh, which slipped my mind for the moment. And that's it. So in any event, the U.S. found itself stuck with Afghanistan in a low to mid-level insurgency, which is a pro terrible problem, uh, but not a series of operations by al-Qaeda, which was our stated objective in going there. And our resources and attention were diverted under President Bush instantaneously, really, within within weeks from Afghanistan to Iraq. And uh, then 
18 months, 15 months later, after the end of the military segment of the Afghan invasion, uh, the United States invaded Iraq. So walk me through how that happens. You go into Afghanistan, you haven't finished your job, and suddenly now you are invading Iraq, which is ruled by Ba'atis Saddam Hussein, who was fundamentally not a wonderful lovey-dovey character. He's been gassing Kurds, he's been using chemical weapons against Marsh Arabs, uh, the Shia Arabs uh, in the south of the country who has uh, in the past invaded Kuwait, but who's fundamentally a socialist and he's a Baathist and Al-Qaeda, which is hardline Sunni fundamentalist, views him as an enemy and more importantly, he views them as a mortal enemy and he's been locking them up, torturing them and doing things to them that the US cannot even conceive of. So how do you go from squaring that circle, meaning, you know, conflating Osama bin Laden, who's basically an enemy of Saddam, as a friend and ally of Saddam? And how do you make the argument that uh, he's uh, piling up weapons of mass destruction to destroy the U.S.? It's important to... um, to, to, um... Well, keep in mind, but but to be aware, uh, to know, I just want I should say, mm. it's important to know that the conception of terrorism uh, up to 9-11 was dominated for years by the concern about, quote, state-based terrorism. Ah, understood. Um, now, the PLO is not a state, but it is a, an, or, you know, an organization yeah. represent, claiming to represent a state. Just so that our and, listeners know, the younger ones in particular, and we've been chided by some of them not to um, assume knowledge, the PLO was the Palestinian Liberation Organization led by Yasser Arafat, also nominally socialist, and the Palestinian Liberation Organization used terror as a means or as an instrument of policy to fight what they saw as Israeli occupation of their ancestral land. And and not only the Palestinians, but uh, Libya under Muammar Gaddafi uh, from the 1970s uh, up to about the year 2000, uh, it would have been 2005 or so, mm. 2004, 2005, to, uh, uh, conducted terrorist operations. Now, Libya is a state. The terrorist operations were conducted by um, or at the behest of the Libyan intelligence organization mm. and government. Well, the Pakistan Libyans... did that too. I mean, sorry, carry on. Finish your point about Libya. And well, yeah, important, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the Libyans, um, because, not to get too much into history, but the the United States and Libya were quite hostile to each other. Libya was uh, nationalized uh, the oil industry. This is an old neo post-colonial you know, issue um, that irritated the West. Uh, and then um, Gaddafi, the leader of Libya, uh, threatened the U.S. in a number of ways. I, I experienced this when I was working in, in Africa in the early 1980s. And thousands of miles away from from Libya. They then, they, the Libyans, uh, set off a bomb in a disco in Berlin where American service personnel were known to uh, frequent. Uh, at the time, there were 330,000 U.S. soldiers in 
uh, Western Europe because of the Cold War uh, to oppose the uh, uh, potential invasion of uh, Western Europe by the Soviet Union. So they killed American servicemen. The response by President Reagan then was to bomb um, uh, Tripoli and uh, nearly to kill bin Laden, uh, not bin Laden, I'm saying, Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi and actually did kill one of his children, an infant, uh, but missed him. So there were tensions. And st- the, the important point in this context is that state-based terrorism was the paradigm, the way of conceiving of terrorism by the United States and, and most people who were, quote, terrorist watchers at the time. So Al-Qaeda, however, is not a state. And there... And this framework also was strongly influenced by America's support for Israel, which was a victim of repeated state-based terrorist operations, whether it was from the PLO or from sympathizers and hostile players, um, uh, hostile uh, entities, hostile to Israel. Yeah, on that, including on that Iran. note, uh, two examples, 1976, the Munich Olympics. Uh, when Palestinian cool. terrorists killed a lot of... 1972, troops. 72. Uh, yes, sorry, 72, not 76, I stand corrected. 76 was uh, Moscow, so... Uh, 76 was Moscow. Uh, Montreal. No, 76 was Montreal, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. 19... Yeah. So, 19 uh, Munich Olympics, and in the Munich Olympics, basically, Palestinians, uh, terrorists took uh, a lot of um, Israeli... Um, athletes hostage and killed them. It was a tragic incident. And then, of course, six years later, um, there was uh, the bombing in Beirut, which was a massive blow to the Americans. And that was, of course, uh, inspired by Iran. I think Hezbollah carried it out. Hezbollah announced its arrival at the global stage. So um, we we had... uh, Incidents like that in the past, ipso facto, of course, the view of state-sponsored terrorism ran high. And those of us who come from India know very well that in the 1980s, just as the U.S. was funding uh, the Afghan jihad, uh, some of that money was going in to fund uh, terrorism in India because the Pakistanis had lost in 1971. Uh, They'd lost in the... India-Pakistan war that led to the creation of Bangladesh, which was East Pakistan. And after that, the dictator, General Ziaul Haq, swore, or rather launched Operation Tupac to bleed India through a thousand cuts. So first, um, they, uh, uh, which is the Pakistani intelligence uh, folks, the ISI, sponsored, funded, basically, and supported uh, an insurgency in Punjab for the Khalistan. And then, of course, Kashmir blew up in 1989. So this uh, state-sponsored terrorism had been around for a while. And uh, well, well, this well, the the incidents sounds too mild. While the uh, events that you touch upon in in India and Pakistan were occurring, uh, I was starting my career in the early mid 80s, and my first my first assignment, my first day after I took the oath for various reasons, I was assigned to what was then uh, the Lebanon uh, uh, issues, Lebanon desk. And uh, at that time, in the early mid-80s, 
Hezbollah in particular, which is a proxy for Iran, the revolutionary regime of Iran, which is a, considered the United States the Shaitan Bazorg, which means the great Satan, uh, was kidnapping Americans uh, resident in Beirut because Beirut had collapsed, Lebanon had collapsed into civil war after Israel invaded in 1982. Now, Israel invaded because the Palestine Liberation Organization was attacking Israel and was um, based at that time in Lebanon. So the invasion um, essentially destroyed the Lebanese government and threw the country into a civil war um, among the Christian faction, the, the Sunni, and the uh, Shia. And the Shia came to be dominated by, led by, represented by Hezbollah. And Hezbollah was supported and created by Iran. And Iran has always been quite hostile to the uh, um, infidel Jew and hostile to uh, Israel and, and used Hezbollah to attack it. Since Hezbollah, 1979, since, since they had the revolution, the Islamic yeah. revolution. And, the Isra the yeah. Iranian revolution was in 79. Exactly. And, and just um, one quick thing. It's uh, this pattern of, of uh, kidnappings continues. Daniel Pearl was killed uh, in Pakistan. Right. And of course, um, two years uh, before 9-11 um, uh, in 1999, a plane was hijacked from India, taken to Kandahar, surrounded by the Taliban. And India... Um, basically went down on its knees and handed over three terrorists who started three phenomenal terrorist organizations, including the ones who ended up beheading Daniel Pearl. And so terrorism, uh, whether it is in Lebanon or whether it is Afghanistan, the, you know, the Taliban had been going around for a while. So this was state-based terrorism, and that was the framework that the U.S. viewed this uh, from which the U.S. viewed terrorism in general. So that, let's jump ahead again to Saddam Hussein. Yeah. Saddam Hussein was hostile to, as I think, without exception, Arab Muslim leaders and states were to Israel and was denounced by the United States as a state sponsor of terrorism. Now, the facts are, again, as always, um, controversial and, and disputed. However, it is true that Saddam Hussein did two things. He allowed a, um, a jihadist Al-Qaeda um, sympathetic group um, to exist in the north of, of Iraq. But in fact, it was an area of Iraq beyond Saddam Hussein's control. <laughs> this is after the U.S. Um, uh, liberation of Kuwait, and it was part of uh, northern Iraq that Saddam never reestablished control so that's, over. That's so that's basically one... Kurdish territory. So that group was a Kurdish-controlled yes. territory. Well, no, nominally Kurdish-controlled, but sort of beyond the Kurds' control As well, also, so it was a no-man's land, whereas this right. group sort of prospered when neither the Kurds right. nor Saddam's forces had control. Correct. Near near Iran, uh, and the other incident uh, was of a terrorist attack against Israel um, that occurred from uh, Iraq by a group that was I think it was a it was a Hezbollah faction that Saddam allowed to conduct this operation uh, for, uh, but that's 
it. I have no brief to defend Saddam Hussein, who was a hideous monster. Uh, but those were the in instances of state-based terrorism from Iraq. The neoconservatives in the United States, their view, what were their objectives? What was their view? First, their view and their, their objectives. They were strongly supportive of Israel. They characterized Israel uh, as the air, an aircraft carrier uh, in the Middle East. The only it's true, the only democracy in the Middle East, uh, sharing Western values and a critical um, ally and a moral uh, obligation to protect Israel uh, from the neoconservative perspective. It uh, opposes uh, anti-Western uh, uh, pressures, Iran, uh, jihadists, um, statists, um, like uh, Qaddafi or, or Saddam, uh, and any Soviet influence that, uh, or Russian influence that would extend um, it, its uh, sway into the Middle East. And um, so that's, we had to support Israel from the neoconservative perspective. And there are moral reasons and so on and so forth also. Thus, the state sponsor of terrorism, uh, which had snubbed uh, its nose at uh, the West, even after the, at the United States, even after the uh, liberation of Kuwait uh, in 1990 in the first Gulf War, um, was viewed as uh, hostile. Now, it is true, I worked on Iraqi issues at the time, and after the invasion, it was also believed and established, it is absolutely certain, that Saddam Hussein was working on a nuclear weapons program, did have biological weapons programs and chemical weapons programs, which were then broadly termed weapons of mass destruction. And the fear was if he gets a, uh, a nuclear weapon or a biological weapon, he will use it against Israel. And we cannot allow this to happen. Uh, and he may share it, the view was, with uh, state-based terrorist organizations. Uh, probably not true, but that was sincerely believed. Now, I know for a fact that, uh, so there are any number of, there were 18 resolutions passed in the United Nations of sanctions and obligations for Saddam Hussein's Iraq to follow in allowing inspectors to uh, verify that he was no longer pursuing uh, nuclear weapons, uh, in 1990, 1981, the Israelis bombed a nuclear uh, facility in Iraq to stop uh, his nuclear weapons program. So it, there was substance to the, the concerns and the fears. And Saddam uh, flouted after the invasion of uh, uh, Kuwait and its liberation by the United States in 1990. He flouted in the next five years, 18 UN resolutions and uh, wasn't really forthcoming. I had my office floor uh, filled with files uh, of Iraqi weapons um, programs and inspections and their uh, cheating and trying to hide things. So there, there was no question that he was not doing what the Western community thought. So this is another fear by the neoconservatives, and not only neoconservatives, about Saddam Hussein, that if um, allowed to continue ignoring UN sanctions and obligations, uh, that we would find ourselves with a, uh, a very dangerous man with a nuclear weapon. And that was a real uh, fear.
and, and one that I shared, uh, I, I saw the inspection reports and considered it to be a well-founded concern. And then there is a neoconservative view, which is that he was a state-based um, terrorist, which was not true. Then the neoconservatives also thought, uh, and this is more controversial because they will uh, often will deny it, but but I think this is substantially uh, accurate. Um, the United States was experiencing the beginning of its well, it was in the in the middle of its unipolar moment, and had an opportunity to reorganize uh, the Middle East in its image, so it imagined. And there was, as, as Atul, you'll probably know better than I in some ways, because you aren't American, and you will have experienced the American obsessions from without. The, this historic view that America has a mission to bring democracy and the American way of life to the benighted peoples of the world, who are, by definition, anyone who's not American. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> and, I, I, I get... Uh... I get Americans uh, uh, preaching to me as to how democracy uh, could improve in India. And uh, my response generally is to play Madonna, Papa Don't Preach, uh, because uh, democracy by its very nature, as we discussed in our very first podcast, is fragile anywhere in the world and is imperfect. And um, in some ways, Indian democracy is far more robust than American democracy. We have a lower caste uh, prime minister and uh, a woman who comes from um, one of the forest-dwelling Adivasi tribes, meaning tribes that are called the scheduled tribes. So, uh, you know, the point is India is a different society and uh, Indian democratization is naturally extraordinarily messy if you apply the Western lens. But it is a model that Indians will come up over decades, perhaps even centuries, by themselves. They cannot function as to uh, American specifications. They cannot simply dance to someone else's tune, particularly given their colonial background. They're very touchy about that. And Americans don't understand that at all. I mean, you see it, it repeatedly um, in Washington, D.C. circles. So you'll... Uh, there was a desire, or one of the objectives was uh, by the neoconservatives who were who were pushing to invade Iraq. Well, we can uh, we can reorganize the Middle East so that Israel is forever secure, U.S. interests are forever predominant. Uh, uh, Iran, I haven't even mentioned Iran in the Iraqi context. Iran is the historic, or at least recent, uh, enemy of Iraq because there, there had been a terrible, terrible. Iraq, Iran, Iran Iraq war, war, eight years, 1980 to 1988, which was horrific. Hundreds of thousands of people yeah, killed. Horrific. Um, this was a view, well, we can deal a blow against Iran by destroying Saddam Hussein. Now, that's that's a lunatic assessment and the exact opposite of what, in fact, <laughs> occurred. I mean, it's, but, it's interesting because, you know, of course, coming from India, when I first heard that argument, uh, uh, by some uh, American Rhodes scholars, I was flabbergasted. I, I, in fact, I remember telling them they had to read a basic world history textbook. The level of ignorance was extraordinary. It was stratospheric. Well, many, many people who are far more um, knowledgeable and expert in, on the Middle East than, than I argued, but I, I, I too shared the view, which is that Saddam Hussein was a terrible person and, and leader in, in, in a criminal in many, many ways. But 
objectively, he was the most secular um, leader, perhaps with uh, King Hussein, um, most secular King Hussein leader, of which Jordan, is you just for our listeners, so Jordan, that they know that. Um, in the Middle East, and the, and the most powerful um, opponent of Iranian expansion uh, in, in the Middle East. So destroying Saddam Hussein would not seem to be a wise step to take if the primary objective is constraining Iran. Yeah. But that was sort of part of the rationale. And and then there was the there was the 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 view, which is that um, we liberated Kuwait because it had been uh, invaded and destroyed by Saddam Hussein, in part because that's a terrible thing to do to a sovereign state, and in part because we didn't want any hostile party to control the preponderance of. Um, of oil production, yeah, the Kuwaiti oil uh, fields. You you didn't want the oil fields, power to control that, right? Or the Persian Gulf, and so for all of those reasons, the neoconservatives thought, uh, well, this is our divine um, uh, destiny and mission is we must eliminate this evil man, and he was an evil man. So hang on a minute. Let's summarize the arguments. Hang on a minute. Let's summarize the arguments. There is the weapons of mass destruction argument that. Number one, Saddam had WMD, as they are called, weapons of mass destruction, and he could unleash it against the West um, in general and the US in particular. Number two, there was the democracy agenda of the neoconservatives that we will get rid of Saddam, and this is at the height of the unipolar moment, and we will recreate the Middle East in our image. So Israel will no longer be the only democracy in the Middle East, there'll be another democracy. Number Peace, th- justice, and democracy for all. Exactly, exactly. We'll all sing Kumbaya. Number three, by getting rid of Saddam, we will be able to send a signal to Iran. So they abandoned the balance of power uh, uh, policy of the likes of Henry Kissinger, and they go for this lunatic idea that Iran, after seeing Saddam chopped off, or, or, or basically unseated from, from his throne, will then play ball. There'll be the deterrence argument. This will deter Iran. And, and number four, of course, is that we liberated Kuwait, and, and, um, and um, we did so because Iraq was egregious in attacking it, and Iraq is a hostile power in the Persian Gulf, and we will get rid of Iraq, so we'll, we will destroy the disease through chemotherapy. And we will then have security and energy security. So these are the four separate arguments. That's pretty much it, with one other, which is was never stated. Oh, there's a fifth controversial. one. Wow. Okay. Well, the, the, some some people think uh, I never personally mm. sensed any of this, although I I'm not, mm. wasn't in remotely a senior enough position to have any sense about at all. Some people thought that that President Bush, the son of President Bush uh, from father yeah, in fresh, the 19- President George uh, Herbert Walker Bush, the father, the retired 18, CIA 19, director. 1982, yeah. uh, that um, because Saddam Hussein, something I didn't mention, Saddam Hussein tried to assassinate President Bush mm-hmm. in retribution for the uh, first Gulf War, which evicted the United States, evicted Iraq from mm-hmm. Kuwait. Um, that President Bush just viewed Saddam correctly as a, as a 
absolutely horrible human being who, who needed to be punished for doing terrible things, like trying to assassinate my father. Um, so the fifth argument is the vendetta argument. Too. The fifth argument is the vendetta argument, the Sicilian argument. Well, bringing justice to a criminal, uh, which was, you know, okay. there's truth to that. So justice um, argument. But those are the motivations. And, and so some do of the Sicilians. They, they, they want justice too. You, you turn to... Uh, yes, the, yes, uh, yes. to the mafia boss because you know on his daughter's wedding day because you want justice and the courts don't deliver it <laughs> and and then you know there's hubris feeling that the united states can do whatever it sets its mind to do and and certainly from a military perspective yeah. that remains but certainly in 19 in 2003 was the case yeah. there, there was you know there was not no combination of other states could rival the United States alone, yeah. if it if it set its mind to do something militarily, and it was absolutely true. And uh, thus, and then there was the true belief, which was, I'm afraid, literally delusional, um, that Saddam Hussein was part of Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda's global war on terror, but that is literally, absolutely not true, not true. But believed, and uh, thus, uh, within uh, weeks, I, I knew, I knew from December two thousand one on that their priorities were refocused, as did all of my colleagues, uh, and that we were marching to uh, a whole different war. I see. So, uh, Glenn, we've already gone past the hour, and we haven't even gone into the consequences of what happened. We, which we shall do that in our next podcast so that listeners uh, can come back and listen to you to, to unravel the tapestry as to what transpired. But from what you're saying is that uh, the United States um, ended up becoming a prisoner of its own imaginations, of its own hallucinations, of its own paranoia a bit like the McCarthyers, and it imagined shadows where there were none. And it ended up squandering a lot of blood and treasure on threats that were not exist, not existential threats for the U.S. No, this is the, one of the terrible things. I, I, I have never said that there, are, there was no threat to parry. There, there were, uh, I lost colleagues. Uh, there are individuals and organizations seeking to cause harm to American individuals and America as a country. Mm -hmm. And they need to be stopped. There's absolutely no question about that. But um, that should have been done as it was, frankly, prior to the attack of 9-11 by dedicated professional counterterrorism officers in the U.S. intelligence community and, mil and armed services. And law so special operations and intelligence uh, That's right. officers Not working by, in tandem. Not by the all of the resources of the U.S. military, intelligence, law enforcement, and civil state, um, and and to the tune of eight trillion dollars instead of the the millions it costs to um, operate counterterrorist operations. So using a scalpel, to give an analogy, using a scalpel instead of a hammer. And then this, uh, maybe we can conclude on this point because it sort of segues from how did this happen or why to what are, are the consequences. The why ties in 
with uh, the consequences that happened. And uh, our listeners um, should remember that 2001 is the year when uh, the Taliban attacks uh, the Twin Towers in New York and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and uh, the global war on terror begins. But it is also the year China joins the World Trade Organization. And so 2000 years is, 2001 is a very fateful year. And uh, what transpires in the 20 years after, uh, in the 20 years that follow is historic. And we will be going into the consequences of America's uh, intervention in Afghanistan and its invasion of Iraq and all that followed um, and, and how it created the world we live in today next time. So until then, from, um, from uh, the Rajput and the Wasp, uh, it is bye for now. Talk to you soon.